How many are you grateful for the gospel tonight? It's good news, isn't it? Amen. Well, I'm going to invite you tonight to stand with me as we read the scriptures together. 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, uh, whichever you prefer. I do prefer 2 Corinthians. Um, it has nothing to do with any political reason, but I listen to the British guys preach a lot, and they say 2 Corinthians, and they sound very smart. So uh, you'll hear me say both. But whatever your preference tonight, uh, we're going to talk about evangelism, how to uh, make the gospel known and... and um, why we should make the gospel known and how to make the gospel known from this really awesome passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. I'm going to read down to verse 21. Now, here's what we'll do when I get finished reading. We do this little piece of liturgy at our church where we finish reading. I say, this is God's word. And everyone says, thanks be to God. And um, I just love that little bit of liturgy as we express our belief in the Bible, which Dr. Aiken taught us about this morning. And by the way, if you're staying overnight, you're welcome to come to our church. We would love to see you. Uh, we have three services. The first is at 8 in the morning. Um, and if you come, you would double our attendance. So uh, you're welcome to come to that. Uh, but I'm going to read. This is God's word. Your part is thanks be to God. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outer appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is God's word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We pray that you would come now and meet with us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, question tonight. What are you afraid of? Snakes? Dogs? Maybe the person next to you. A little confession tonight. I don't like roller coasters. I have really no problem with heights. I fly a lot. I don't mind getting up in tall buildings. Perhaps the, the, the greatest fear is being buckled in by a teenager before you go upside down, way up in the air. I've never felt comfortable when they come by and try to you know, secure me. And so some years ago now, uh, my wife and I and our whole family, we went to uh, Bush Gardens in Williamsburg, Virginia. And they have a ride called the Griffin. 
Now, some of you may be familiar with this ride. I have a picture of this, this ride. Um, we got to the amusement park. First of all, I don't live in like amusement parks. And my father-in-law said, Tony, do you want to ride the Griffin? I said, no. And for some reason, I got on this ride. And that, so they suspend you up in the air for what seems to be, you know, an hour. And it's like a straight drop down. And so my father-in-law took a picture cl up close. And you see... <laughs> how I was trying to make. Now, what's funny about this picture is that Kimberly's right next to me, and, uh, you know, she's just chill. She's, like, having a pedicure, you know, just peaceful. Her sister, Jessica, jumps out of airplanes, so she's having no problem with uh, this. And then you've got an 11-year-old next to me who's having the time of his life. And the, the only way I knew to endure this experience was to just hold my breath and close my eyes and endure it. And that's what I was doing on the Griffin. Now, that's a great picture of church planting. That's a, that's a great picture of, for many people, evangelism. There are a lot of Christians who, um, they're not afraid to serve, but they are afraid to speak. And if you would admit that you have some level of timidity, I want you to know you're actually in good company, and I'm here to encourage you tonight. Even the mighty Apostle Paul, at various points, admitted his own fear. We're reading from 2 Corinthians tonight, but the church was started back in Acts chapter 18. And Paul almost gave up because it was such a hard environment. And Jesus appeared to Paul one night in a vision, we're told in Acts chapter 18, and comforted Paul with these words. He says, Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now turn to somebody and say, go on speaking. Go on speaking. Now notice here. Now stop speaking. Notice why he tells Paul to go on speaking. He says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And I have many in this city who are my people. Three great promises. Paul, I'm with you. Paul, I've got people in this city. And you preach the gospel and they will come to faith. And Paul, no one will ultimately attack you to harm you. Which wasn't true in the other cities where Paul went, but it was true in Corinth. God fulfilled all of his promises to Paul. And it says there in Acts chapter 18 that Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So he says to Paul, Paul, I want you to go on speaking in the midst of your fear. And he doesn't tell Paul, hey, you should go on speaking because of how good you are at it. Or because of how mighty you are. You know, there's only one historical reference that I know of that speaks of the physical stature of the Apostle Paul. We don't know if it's historically reliable or not from Paul and Thecla. And this is the description of Paul. He's, quote, small in size, bald head, bow-legged, well-built, with eyebrows meeting. You knew he had a unibrow, like you just knew, Paul. That's how he could be all things to all people, you know. A rather long nose, and he's full of grace. And so Paul, you don't get this in your mind that he is a physically, you know, impressive human being. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 10, they say, Paul, when you write letters, you're really bold. But when you show up, eh, there's just not much to you, man. Like, you're more like George Costanza than LeBron James. Um, you, you, you sound impressive. So what is it? You're reading the Bible. You're reading the book of Acts, and you're seeing this little guy go all around the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel, getting beat up. He's like Glass Joe in Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, if you've ever played that game. He just, just keeps getting beat up in every city, and he's planting churches. 
Well, it's because of the promises of God. It's because of what we read in this passage here. What drove the Apostle Paul? This letter, he writes it some eight to ten years later after planting that church in Corinth. He writes this letter to the Corinthians and he opens his heart to them. This is perhaps the most vulnerable letter that we have of the Apostle Paul. He is super transparent in 2 Corinthians as he's expressing his own ministry motivations. And what you see in this passage that we just read is not just this this dramatic experience of Jesus appearing to him in a vision, but rather the everyday motives of the Apostle Paul. Because all of us, I think, would say, well, if Jesus appeared to me in some dramatic vision, yeah, that would motivate me to share the gospel. But what about the day-to-day? And what we see in this passage tonight is really simple. We see why we speak how we speak, and what we speak. Or rather, why we speak, what we speak, and how we speak. Why we speak, Paul gives us in verses 11 to verse 17. Or verse 16, rather. Why we speak. What we speak, we see and pick it up in verses 17 to verse 21. And how we speak, we're just going to look at all of these verses and put together six ways. Okay, so let's talk about this together. As Paul talks to us about the gospel and the need to preach the gospel. You see in this passage a number of of speaking words, like in the very beginning in verse 11, that we persuade people. Later, he says, we implore you be reconciled to God. Now, I think Paul is talking about his own pattern of ministry, but I don't think there's anything here that's not also, you know, the pattern for which we ought to follow also as, as Christians. He's setting an example for us. But it's a passage that's just oozing with with Paul saying, here's why I speak. Here's what I speak. Here's how I speak. And so why he speaks, you see two motivations. And there are two twin motivations. You might call it the fear factor and the love factor. Paul is motivated by a reverential awe of Christ. And he's motivated by the radical love of Christ. It's the awe of Christ and the love of Christ that motivates Paul to do and be what he is. You see the first in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now this sounds like a really strange motivation at first. Before we talk about just the love of Christ, which then gives us love for the lost, the first motivation in this passage at least First is a vertical motivation. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. What does Paul mean by this? Well, I think what he means by that is verse 10. You see, therefore, it's linking us to the previous passage. The, very, the, the previous verse in verse 10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you just keep walking back, you see verse 9. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. What motivated these apostles, what motivated Paul was an absolute awe of Jesus. And you know what will get us talking about the gospel? The awe of Christ. When people see him as he is, the risen Christ, in the book of Revelation, for example, John says he fell down like a dead man. And so what Paul has here is this understanding that he will appear before Jesus at the judgment. And it's this divine compulsion that enables Paul to be bold. He is compelled by a, re- a, a reverential awe of who Jesus is. 
He knows his accountability before Jesus. Now understand, Paul's not horrified by the thought of judgment. He's good. He knows, he wrote that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, he says in in chapter 5 that he would rather be at home with the Lord. So he's not fearing. He's not standing in a a sense of being, you know, terrorized at the thought of judgment. But the, the, the picture here is more of a sense of accountability. Paul knows, like we should know as Christians, that one day all of our work will be brought into the light. And what will matter on that day is not, did we get a good tan? How far did we make it on World of Warcraft? What will matter on that day is how faithful we've been to Jesus in his great commission. And that moves Paul. And that's why Paul would say, I'd rather be with the Lord. He is just so captivated by Jesus. This is why Paul would write things like, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how you couldn't shut Paul up. Because what are you going to do to him? Hey, Paul, we're going to kill you. That'd be great, bro. To die is gain. No, Paul, we're not going to kill you. We're going to let you live. That'd be I too, dog. To live is Christ. <laughs> well, Paul, we thought about it. You know, we're going to let you live, but we're going to make you suffer. That'd be I too. For I consider the suffering of this present world not worth comparing next to the glory that will be revealed to us. You kill me, I'll be with Christ. You let me live, I live for Christ. You make me suffer, I get a reward from Christ. What you got? How do you stop that guy? You don't. You don't. And it's that exact motivation that all of us should have, that we pray we would have. One day, all of our work will be brought into the light. When I was in high school, I wasn't a great student. Um, but I loved home ec. And I was a really good cook. I did well in cooking. And, but sewing, I was horrible. And we had to make a sweatshirt one time. And I had a Porsche I was supposed to make and put on my sweatshirt. And it was so terrible that I just sort of gave up and I went all avant-garde on the sweatshirt. You know, arm here and an arm down here. And I didn't know that the teacher would walk in eventually and say, class, we're going to put all of our work up into the front hallway when you enter the high school. <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm, I'm regretting my, 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 little, my little experiment here. Well, in similar sense, one day, all of our work, all of our motives will be brought into the light. There is ultimately no anonymity. The one who knows us most matters most. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we don't waste our lives. We don't waste our lives. We make our lives count. And we realize that everything we do in Jesus' name, even though it might seem insignificant to people, matters. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, keep that in mind as Paul moves on to the next sentence, because what does it look like if you live with a reverential all of Christ. Verse 12, Paul would go on to tell us that you might look crazy to people. But what we are, he says, is known to God. There are a lot of people who are, who are dissing Paul. They're saying, well, you know, Paul's not a really good Christian because he's suffering. That means he must not be faithful. Or some are just thinking he's just lost his mind theologically. There are a lot of people questioning Paul's authority, his apostleship in this particular letter. So he says, what we are is known to God. And I hope, he's writing to the church, it's also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outer appearance and not about what is in the heart. 
Uh, the more things change, the more they stay, stay the same. People being judged on outer appearance. People were making, uh, you know, conclu- drawing conclusions about Paul without really the, the data. And so he's saying, Corinthians, God knows who we are. And he says, if you ever want to know, you know, what's going on in my mind, here you go, verse 13. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we're in our right mind, it is for you. So he says, whether you want to judge me rational or irrational, know that everything I'm doing is for the glory of God and the good of people. If, I am in, if I've lost my mind, if it looks like, it is for God. Now what he's essentially saying here, students, and you know this very well, if you really want to live a faithful Christian life, some people will think you're crazy. Now please understand, I'm not talking about being foolish or in any way unwise. But if you want to make your life count, If you want to live a life that really matters, there are some people who are going to draw conclusions and make statements about you. How many of you know that missionaries are a little crazy? And you can just go through the list, right? John G. Patton was a famous pastor in Glasgow, Scotland, and he wanted to take the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands. He was a great pastor, and the people protested and said, no, if you go there, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And they weren't making that up. 20 years earlier, some missionaries were cannibalized. And Patton, by the way, they they wanted to pay him more money to get him to stay in his church. After an older gentleman protested, Patton looked at him and said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own body is soon to be laid in the grave. There to be eaten by worms. And I confess to you, but if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. At, the, at, at that word, Mr. Dixon walked out of the room and says, I have nothing else to say. Jim Elliott, they thought he was too smart to be a missionary great Wheaton student. David Livingston wrote to his missionary society on one occasion, so powerfully convinced I am that it is the will of the Lord that I should go to Africa, I will go no matter who opposes me. And one of my favorite examples, Gladys Aylward. She's four foot ten. She's got jet black hair and she felt called to be a missionary to China. Her mission agency wouldn't accept her. Too small, not intelligent enough, hasn't learned the language. And her whole life, Elwert had really been bothered by the fact that she was so short and she had, as she called, boring black hair. And she actually prayed that God would make her taller and make her blonde. Years later, she went on her own. She wasn't supported by the mission agency. She arrived on the wharf in that teeming Asian country and she saw hundreds of people as short as she was with jet black hair that God had prepared for Gladys Elward. And she worked tirelessly for the orphan, for the oppressed, and the lost. If we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. A reverential awe of Christ will lead us to do everything for the glory of God and the good of people. That's the first motivation. Second motivation, Paul's motivated not just by the awe of Christ, but the love of Christ. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. It doesn't just motivate us, Paul says. 
It controls us. That is, the love of Christ keeps us from being self-serving, self-centered. The love of Christ, and I think from the context what Paul means is Christ's love for him. That controls him. Right? You see in, in verse 15 he goes to the cross. This is Galatians 2.20, right? That I've been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I who live, but, but I live uh, for Christ, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the love that Jesus has had for Paul that has, is now constraining him, controlling him. Jesus has the reins of Paul's life. He is, he is consumed by this love. And this love that Jesus has had on him now works itself out to a love for people. He says in verse, at the end of verse 14, that we've concluded that one has died, therefore all have died. So Jesus died for sinners. And those who are in him, as he translates in verse 15, that is those who live, that is those who have life in Christ, those who are in Jesus, he says, they have died. Which means Jesus has died our death. But more than that, there's a practical impact of the cross in this passage. The death of Jesus, he says now, means this, that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised. Let me break that down in a sentence. Paul says that the gospel frees us from our addiction to ourselves. Jesus didn't rise from the dead so we could be self-absorbed people. He died, right, and rose so that we who are in him, we who live, might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised. This love controls Paul. So if you, if you want to think for a moment, you know, how do I grow in my love for people? From this passage, at least, I think we can conclude this. It's not by looking at sad pictures. Guilt won't ultimately motivate us for the long haul. But grace will. Grace will motivate us for the long haul. If you want to grow in your love for people like Paul here, grow in your appreciation for the cross. The more Paul thinks about the cross, the greater degree of love he has. Verse 16, because of the cross, notice what he says about people. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We, we used to think about people based on external appearances. Right? Their affluence, their ancestry, their age, whatever. Their appearance. But now, because of the cross, he says... We don't do this anymore. And he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we used to look at him as just a Jewish man who hung upon a tree. But not anymore. We regard him thus no longer. So in other words, the cross is, it, for Paul, it's, his, it's the center of his, of his life. The cross and resurrection. You might say he's cross-eyed. He, 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 I made him a unibrow and cross-eyed tonight. I, I'm sorry, Paul. Um, but when he thinks about people, he doesn't see them as just flesh. He sees them as people in need of the gospel. His whole value system's been reordered. Paul, we really want to know, man, what motivates you. It's a reverential awe of Christ. It's the radical love of Christ. That's why we speak. Jesus has shown us grace. He's changed us from the inside out. And that's now what he gets to. What we speak. He gives us 
really three aspects of the gospel. Three words, I'll give them to you. They all end in the word Asian. PlayStation is not one of them, okay? Regeneration, reconciliation, and justification. This is what we proclaim to the world. All right, the gospel is true. It's, it's not fake news, it's true news. It's not good advice. It's an announcement. It's an announcement of facts, right? And we have to speak it. Like, we don't want to adopt that philosophy, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Well, it's great to love your neighbor well. We must do that. But the gospel, by very definition, demands that it be spoken. It's news. No one gets on CNN or Fox tonight and says, Hey guys, tonight I want to bring you the news. And if necessary, I'll use words. No, you have to use words to bring the gospel. But what do you say? Well, notice here, regeneration, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. How many of you are glad that's true tonight? I mean, why on earth would you be here tonight if this weren't true? It's Friday, students. Like, why are you here? Well, we're here tonight because, is it Friday? It's Saturday, students. Why are you here? (laughs) What night is it? I have no idea. It's a weekend. That's what I know. Well, we're here tonight because we've been made new creations. So when we talk to people, we're not saying, hey, if what we're trying to get you to do is be a nicer person, a more well-behaved person. No, no. We are saying in the gospel, you can be a new person. Because in the gospel, you get new affections. You're changed from the inside out. Now, this happens differently for everybody. The event of going from death to life. But the results are the same. That is, we're bearing fruit. We're alive. That's how we know we've been born anew. We're alive tonight. Spiritually alive. Now, I became a Christian in college. I was a sophomore. So I wouldn't have been at this conference until I was a junior. Most likely. And uh, I was a baseball player. Some of you know my testimony. And uh, it was a shortstop. And my second baseman led me to Christ. I had no interest in the gospel. I had no understanding, really, of it. And I had a relentless witness on our team who loved lost people. And they loved him, actually. He was so winsome and so gracious. He would bang on my door for 30 minutes, but I loved him on Sunday morning. He would drag me to church services. And I would watch him. He had a huge Bible. I later learned it was called a study Bible. It had all the answers in the bottom. And I was like watching this guy. Like, like you're actually paying attention to the, to the pastor. You like this. And I was just watching him. I was amazed. And I went to an FCA service as a sophomore. And God radically changed my life. Started a Bible study on our baseball team. We're running the next day at practice, you know. And Stephen's like, hey, man, we're going to start a Bible study. I'm like, that's great. I need to go get one. So I went and got this massive study Bible. I started reading it. I didn't know anything about the Bible, man. They'd be like, hey, turn to, turn to John. I'm like, are you John? Like, who's, who's John? <laughs> turn to, I didn't know any verses. They're like, hey, let's all share our favorite verse now. I'm like, well, okay. Like, what's your favorite verse? I don't know. I like the maps, man. Those are fantastic. They got pictures. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I didn't know anything about the Bible. And there in that study, mispronouncing words. I was in four Bible studies a week. I couldn't get enough. I had a reading problem all growing up. I got tutored in reading in college. Failed the reading part of the ACT. Had a comprehension problem. I started reading the Bible. And God radically transformed everything about me. 
I wrote on the edges of that Bible, it's alive. Because that's what was happening. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. All things have become new. Again, not everybody's story is as radical as mine. You don't need to feel guilty about that. But if you're alive tonight, you too have a miraculous story. Every testimony is a miracle story. Because verse 17 has happened in our lives. You know, C.S. Lewis, it wasn't near as dramatic. Lewis says, you know, he, he went from atheism to theism and then to a Christian. And he says, when I was going to the zoo... Um, on my motorcycle, I didn't believe. And when I got to the zoo, I believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Uh, really, that's it. Yeah, trip to the zoo. Um, Augustine, 32 years old, right? Here's some kids singing outside, take up and read. And he goes outside and finds a Bible. Says, I'm just going to read the first thing I see, Romans 13. He opens it and reads it. It becomes a Christian. I mean, crazy, miraculous story. He's got multiple girlfriends. He was a total lust ball. And all of a sudden now he's got problems because he's got all these girlfriends and he's, he's a Christian. He, there's this one story of Augustine running from one of his girlfriends. And she's like chasing him. He's like running from her. And she's like, Augustine, it is I, it is I, it is I. And he's like, and she's like, it is I, it is I. He's like, and eventually he goes, but it is not I. It is not I. That's what happens in the gospel. You get a new eye. You get a new identity. You become a new person. Old things passed away. All things become new. That's why we call this the good news. And that's what we're presenting to the world. Regeneration. That is new life in Christ. Reconciliation is the, the second word. Verse 18, he says, all of this is from God. Just so we're clear, Paul says... None of this is from you. All of this, this whole work of, of grace is just that, a work of grace. It is from God. He goes on to spell it out a bit and he says, Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So here's the need, Paul says. We are alienated from God by nature. The whole story of the Bible is bearing this out. Right? After the fall, we are alienated both from God and from people. Sin has, has separated us. But there's a great gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 that one is going to come from the seed of woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And from Genesis 3.15 onward, we're saying, who is he? Where is he? And then Jesus appears. And he comes and he lives the life we could never live and dies the death we all should have died. Rose on our behalf, conquering the, the grave we could not conquer. And all of this now has reconciled us to God and can reconcile us to one another. Jesus breaks down the walls. He breaks down the wall between us and the Father. He breaks down the wall between races and people. He is, he is the one who is the ultimate reconciler. If you don't have reconciliation with the Father, what you have is restlessness. Restlessness. There can be no peace with God if you're not reconciled to God. Which is why Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's what sin does. It makes you restless. 
John Paul Sartre, the famous atheist, put it like this. That God does not exist, I can't, that God doesn't exist, I cannot deny. But that my whole being cries out for him, I cannot doubt. The ultimate dilemma for Sartre, to say, I don't believe in God, but my whole being wants to believe in God. He's restless. And we are restless because we're made for him. And God has provided a way that you can be reconciled to him through Jesus. How sweet is that phrase? He is not counting our trespasses against us. How is that possible? Well, they've been erased. Have you ever gone bowling before and you've got that automatic scoring system and you can just delete frame? That's nice, isn't it? Bowling, what a great American sport. The true and better curling, isn't it? My wife, she, we were bowling one time, and, and she slipped over the line where, and got on the oil and like went you know, up in the air, and I just lost it laughing. And she turned around, I'm like, are you okay, baby, okay? And I just, let, let me delete that and put a strike in its place. How about that? That's a good move. What's happened to us in the gospel? Not only has our sin been erased, but Jesus' perfect righteousness has been put in his place. He's not counting our trespasses against us. But we're not just from, ne- from, from negative to neutral. He's going to go on and say, we went from negative to positive. The righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us. It's been given to us. We are now reconciled to God. So that's what we're sharing with the world, right? We have this great need. God has provided a solution for it. And then justification. Verses 20 and 21, he says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. We'll come back to that in a second. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And verse 21. If you haven't memorized verse 21, it's a great gospel summary. It's a great verse for you to memorize. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is substitution. Okay, John Stott put it well when he says that the essence of sin is is man substituting himself for God. We want to be God. That's the essence of sin. We say like Adam in the garden, did God really say? Or as the serpent said in the garden. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That is to take the judgment that we deserve. So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. And let me break that down with just four verbs. Okay? Required. There is a righteousness that is required from us. Second verb. Achieved. There is a righteousness that has been achieved for us. A righteousness required from us, a righteousness in Jesus achieved for us, proclaimed a righteousness in the gospel, proclaimed to us and bestowed. There is a righteousness that has been bestowed on us through our union with Jesus. Put it another way. Only righteous people can go to heaven. Perfectly righteous people. We all have a problem. We're not righteous. What we need is a righteousness outside of ourselves. Oh, if we could have someone's perfect righteousness credited to us, then we would be good. And that's what's happened in Christ. His righteousness 
has been credited to our account. In Jesus Christ. Paul says here, the very righteousness that God requires from us is the very righteousness that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. It's a righteousness that's bestowed. That is, we receive it. We don't earn it. If you're not a Christian, we're saying, trust in Jesus. Receive the perfect righteousness of God. There is a total righteousness required from us. And praise God, there has been a righteousness achieved for us. And now there is a righteousness being proclaimed to us. And by faith in Jesus, there is a righteousness bestowed on us. And that is why we're singing songs to Jesus tonight and not songs about ourselves. This is what caused Martin Luther to dance in the streets. When he said before he was a Christian, he read about the righteousness of God in Romans 1. It made him hate God because he knew he wasn't righteous. And then when he discovered that there is a righteousness that is given, not earned. It's given by God, received by faith. He says it was though the gateway of paradise had been opened to him. And that is the good news of the gospel. The good news is that Jesus has paid it all. The gospel is not due, it is done. Jesus has paid it. And my friends, this is why we do missions. Because people need to hear this. You're not going to get this just by general revelation in creation. You need the Bible. You need the gospel. There are some people who don't have a passion for missions because they don't have a gospel worth preaching. They themselves don't cherish the gospel. And I would just remind you, students, as I remind myself in this moment, that we commend what we cherish. You do this all the time. You talk about that which you love. You watch a good Netflix documentary or show, you want to tell everybody about it. Yo, have you seen this? You eat at a new restaurant. Yeah. If we begin to cherish Jesus, we commend him. So cherish this gospel. What do we speak? Regeneration, reconciliation, justification. Thirdly, how do we speak? Briefly here. Backing through the passage again, I think there's six, six ways Paul talks about speaking the gospel. First of all, persuasively. Persuasively. That's very obvious in verse 11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And I would just say on this point that this, this implies being patient with people. I think you know this, students, but in some ways we have to do pre-evangelism with people. People don't even, they don't have a framework by which to understand the gospel. It used to be that most atheists were, quote, Christian atheists. It was the Christian God they were bucking against. But we can't assume that anymore. And so you, it's not uncommon to talk to someone on a college campus that won't understand or, or know, for example, that the Bible has two testaments. It is very possible you're going to have to take a long time with people in order to persuade them. That's implied in the very idea of persuasion. Persuasion is not manipulation. Persuasion is a good thing when you're trying to persuade people about the truth. You don't have to feel bad about persuading. We're doing it because of what we believe about the gospel. We want people to make a decision. We want them to repent and believe in Jesus. But we want to do this patiently, winsomely, right? Compassionately. Understanding that it may not happen in the very first presentation. 
In, this, uh, in Acts 26, the same word is used when Paul is before Agrippa. And Agrippa says, Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? You're going to have to come back, pal. Now, it might be by God's grace, you can win people in the first conversation. But it, in most cases, I think, especially given our context of pre-Christianity or post-Christianity, whatever we want to call it, we're going to have to learn the art of persuading, being patient, talking to people. So let's get into gospel conversations, okay? Secondly, we must do this boldly. If we are going to, to present the gospel to people, we need to be bold about it. I get this from verse 18 when Paul says that God is making his appeal through us as God's ambassadors. Now, the only other place where Paul uses the word ambassador is in Ephesians 6, 18 to 20, in the armor of God passage. He says, pray for us. That words may be given to me so that when I open my mouth, I may declare it boldly as I ought to. Again, there's a case in which Paul, the mighty apostle, is saying, pray for me because I'm timid. Pray for me so that when I have opportunity, words may be given to me. This implies our need for the Spirit's work in our life. That we may present the gospel with boldness. That when we speak, they hear the voice of God. I don't know if you ever watched the movie The Lion King. It's a classic. Um, I don't know if I've even watched the whole thing fully through, but there is a scene. You've got the big lion. His name is Mufasa, and the little one named Simba. And there is a scene in which Simba gets cornered by the hyenas. And they're like, let us hear your roar, Simba. And you remember what Simba sounds like. Meow. I mean, it's, it's very weak sauce. And they're like, let's hear your organ. Meow. And then they keep, they keep provoking, and then all of a sudden you hear, you hear, you hear Mufasa. Well, that's something what we're looking for. That when we open our mouths, they don't hear our voice, they hear the voice of our Father. The righteous are as bold as a lion, the writer of Proverbs says. That kind of boldness doesn't come by our own disposition, our own charismatic personalities. It doesn't come if you're an extrovert. It comes by the Spirit's power. We present this gospel persuasively, boldly, thirdly, responsibly. We take our responsibilities seriously. We are ambassadors for Jesus. You know what that means, students? It means you're important. If you're an ambassador for Jesus, you are important because of what of, because of the message that you carry and because of the one you represent. You're very significant. You're an ambassador. That means your words matter. That means your deeds matter. Now, my wife, she's a way better evangelist than I am. She's singing over here, by the way. And when she came to this seminary to go to school, she actually prayed that the Lord would give her a roommate who was, was not a believer. I don't know many seminary students who do that. So she, she had a roommate that was not in a church. And you want to know, it, it is a serious call to try to bear witness to someone who lives in the same house as you. Who see all your failures, right? And all your, all your follies. You're an ambassador. Some of you probably will be living if you live in a dorm or some environment where you're around non-believers all the time. And I would just say as a college student, this is some of the best time of you'll ever have for evangelistic opportunity. Because you're around lost people all the time. You take this season of your life seriously. You're an ambassador. 
We present this gospel persuasively, boldly, responsibly, fourthly, passionately. Notice there is no sense of, of, of chill here with Paul. We implore you, or as one translation says, we beg you. Paul is very zealous. You can feel the passion. Number five, we do it urgently. Notice down in verse six, or chapter six, we don't have time to get into the, to the rest of six. I would like to work down to verse 13, but you see what he says here, working together with him. And I love that phrase, that we're not doing this on our own. With, with God, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And then he quotes from Isaiah, or Isaiah, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He's saying, what Isaiah prophesied about has now dawned in the coming of Jesus. Now is the day of salvation. Urgently, finally, and most challengingly, sacrificially. If you just peek into chapter 6, what you see is what Paul has endured for the sake of this gospel. If you've ever had a bad day, read this section. And the section that, uh, that comes before chapter 5. Notice what Paul says. He says in, in verse 4, We are servants of God. We commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful, truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished yet not killed. And I love verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Sacrificial. Now, Paul's not just writing from an ivory tower, is he? He's experiencing these things. The New Testament letters are written from the front line of the mission field. And Paul is exemplifying that. You don't have to look hard to find cases of Paul sacrificially making the gospel known, do you? You just turn to Acts and you just start reading about midway through it. You find Paul in Acts 16 there in Philippi with Silas. He's been beaten to a pulp. And it says it's midnight, Acts 16, 25. Now what do you do if it's midnight and you've just exhausted, you've been beaten up? It says that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And we don't know what they were singing, you know, but you can imagine them being pinned up. And Paul's like, Silas. So I was like, yeah, Paul. Paul's like, it's cold down here. So I said, yeah, it is. How about we sing, Silas? Sing? I thought you had the Uno cards, Paul. No. It's like, what do you want to sing, Paul? You can't sing your raspy voice. How about we do that one by MC Hananiah? That's why we pray. You want to do that one? So I said, no, no. Paul's like, how about that one by being a living sacrifice? You want to do that one? Silas like, you just want to do that one because you wrote that one. (laughs) We don't know what they were singing. This is what happens. It says they lift up their voice and God shakes the earth. And this jailer comes out. He probably worked his whole life there. And he says, sirs, I got one question. What must I do to be saved? In other words, whatever it is you got, 
That's what I want. When you bear witness to Jesus sacrificially, it has a persuasion of its own. It's altogether powerful. So my appeal to you tonight, students, is the same appeal I make to myself tonight in my own heart. That we would be motivated by a reverential awe of Jesus. By the radical love of Jesus. That we would proclaim the gospel of regeneration, reconciliation, and justification. And we would do so persuasively, boldly, responsibly, passionately, urgently, and sacrificially. John G. Patton did go to the New Hebrides Islands. And he describes the following moment in which he served communion for the very first time to new believers. This is what he says. For years we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. What a privilege to know this Christ. And what a privilege to make him known. May God grant us much grace to do just that. Father, we thank you tonight for your word, for reconciling us to yourself through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. We're grateful tonight that you have made us alive. And tonight we're going to sing songs expressing our gratitude to you for all that you have done for us in Jesus. That you have given us a righteousness that doesn't come from ourselves. And tonight, Father, even as we sing these songs and celebrate, we also are mindful of those around the world, those in our neighborhoods who are not singing these songs, who we want to sing. And I pray you would use us to love the lost just as we have been loved by Jesus. And it's in his good name we pray. Everybody said, Amen.